Welcome to the Clipper Podcast. This time we will talk about climate change. And we will start with Martin Brook from Brook Farms in Australia, who sounded very worried when I spoke to him on the phone. Now we are in the middle of a serious, serious drought. And where we are in northern New South Wales, right, subtropical New South Wales, we don't get droughts. We're the one area, or one of the very few areas in Australia, where we do get rain. Well, guess what? We're in the same boat as everyone else. I mean, we shouldn't be into fire season until, I'm talking about Australia-wide, till, for, let's say, beginning of December. It's very difficult to say, but, you know, if, if a fire got into your macadamia orchard, because of the oil content with the macadamia tree, it, there would, it would literally explode. The trees would explode. So we're a little bit nervous because we're, the, the fires are actually very near to uh, macadamia and agricultural areas. So, um, you know, if a fire comes through, there's, I mean, what you really have to do is that you have to be prepared to actually get out of the place because there's a big dilemma, should I stay and fight the fire? Well, these fires, you know, when you have 70, 80, 90 kilometer winds, you don't have a lot of time, so you've got to make that decision um, to get out as quickly as possible. We will come back to Martin Brook, who is a very special macadamia farmer, with his now famous macadamia gin and a rainforest on his farm. Our next topic is prunes and climate change. The annual conference at the International Prune Association welcomed Dr. Peter Johnston, who is a climate scientist at the University of Cape Town. Okay, so the very first thing is that climate change is, is not something that is being dreamt up by people in order to force an agenda. We know for very sure the temperatures are going to increase by two to three, maybe even up to five degrees by the end of the century, depending on where you are. If you're in Southern Africa, we're looking at four to five degrees by the end of the century. Now that might not sound like a big deal if you think, oh, well, it's 10 degrees today, it'll be 15, that's fantastic. But the issue comes in your growing season for fruit, which is generally speaking in midsummer, not your average temperature, although 30 degrees is hot if your average temperature was 25 and is now 30, but in your extreme temperatures. So the days that you're going to be looking at where the temperature is over 32, which is generally regarded as a threshold for fruit, two things happen. The one is that the fruit starts to get sunburnt and starts to overheat and you need to cool it down. And the second one is the irrigation demand increases. Now, in most of the Mediterranean regions, and this you can find in research, is that there's a decrease in annual precipitation. There's a decrease in river flow. And all this was on my slides. There's increasing risk of biodiversity loss. There's increasing water demand for agriculture. There's a decrease in yields. There's an increase in fires. There's increase in, in number of heat waves and the effects on the fruit. I wanted to know what the immediate consequences of climate change are for producers of dried fruit like prunes. You as a fruit farmer have got to face up to this and respond in one of two ways. Either, and I put this quite bluntly to them, either you just give up because you can't respond or else you respond by saying, okay, I will look at my soil moisture. I will get more water. Yeah. I will try and increase my cold chain requirements because now the fruits, not only when it comes off the tree, 
Um, all the grain conditions have to be right, but now the cold chain has to be perfect. Taking grapes from the vineyard to the um, to the uh, wineries mm-hmm. on the back of on the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. Those two hours exposed to very high temperatures mm-hmm. and sunshine have a pro- have an issue. So now they're having to use co- cold storage to do that sort of transport. But one of the most important things that they're doing is they're picking at night. Well, not at night, but they start picking at four in the morning and they stop at 10 or 11 and they start again at five in the evening and pick till eight or nine. And that's becoming very, very popular. There are some other ways and things, simple things like shade nets have revolutionized the industry. So, you know, a lot of fruit is now not getting sunburnt. And we all know that a sunburnt plum is not going to sell. The extreme events are probably their biggest threat. And the extreme mm-hmm. events come in various shapes and sizes. The first one we've mentioned is extreme temperature. Now you respond to that by immediate reaction of shading, of cooling, of adding water, uh, and in various stages of the crop. I'm talking about when it's ripe, and even before that, you prune a lot of a lot of the um, uh, immature flowers off, and you, you do all sorts of things to respond to make sure. And that just comes from experience. What are the best technological solutions to respond to the effects of climate change? So there are various uh, techniques that are being used, and the very first one is soil moisture probes. Mm-hmm. If you do not know what your soil moisture is, and you cannot respond to a drying out or an overwetting of your soil immediately through control of your irrigation, then, you, then you're wasting your time and your money. So that's the very first thing, and that's one of the cheapest options. If you can integrate your soil moisture probes into your irrigation system, then you are well on your way to getting the, the correct amount of water for the crop. But then you've got external issues like pests, like diseases. And that's where satellite and drone technology is really coming in. And that can connect up to your irrigation, connect up to your, to your whole system. So it not only is it picking up pests and diseases, it's also picking up drying or water stress. And you can combine that into one thing. So I think we've got a, a program here called Fruit Look which is a free satellite program that is offered to farmers and they just log into it and they give the coordinates of their farm and they get uh, downloaded. And I think the pixel size is probably 20 meters by 20 meters. As Dr. Johnson is not a producer or a trader, I also wanted to know what his view was on the evolution of the prune market. Given that prune consumption still needs to be developed and is underperforming in comparison to other fruit. So if you look at it from a purely business point of view, you'd say, where would dried fruit have a potential market? And you're going, gee, I don't know, a uh, hot place? Not necessarily. Cold place? Not necessarily. Well, what, a desert? Well, yes, sure, where they can't grow fruit, obviously. But hello, when you haven't got refrigeration. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't got refrigeration, the best fruit is a dried fruit. Mm-hmm. And that's why mangoes and bananas are taking off, because these are fantastic fruit. Yeah. But they don't last, you know, within three days, your banana is finished. Yeah. Uh, your mango might last a couple more days. But those where you, where they, that's where your potential markets are. I mean, look at dates. The date is not that different from a prune. And yet dates dominate the Middle East and the African Sahara region. I mean, they're, okay, they've probably got a little bit of protein in them more than, more than um, prunes have. I'm not sure of the makeup of dates. But it's that kind of thing. It's a portable food that doesn't need refrigeration. So I'm sure they've thought of that. I mean, I'm not going to sit in my backside in my office and think of something they haven't thought of. 
But there's no reason not to be slightly hopeful that alternative markets are going to open up. At the same time, he's very upbeat about the prospects for South African producers selling to Africa. We export an enormous amount of fruit to Africa, especially deciduous fruit, but not nearly as much as goes to China because the prices in China are much higher. But as Africa becomes more affluent, as Africa increases in in, in wealth, if you like, in, 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 dis in disposable income, there's a massive market that could be created there. So when I talk about bad news, you must understand that there are various ways of responding. I went to Hanover to the Agriculture Technology Fair Agritechnica and I talked to an interesting company that is developing smart ways to understand crop water through satellite imagery. Sure, we're a fundus hardware and earth observation company, an analytics company. Um, we have a proprietary method where we provide three data sets on a daily basis for the whole world on a 100 by 100 meter resolution, and that's soil moisture, so the amount of water in the soil, uh, the land surface temperature, so the temperature of the field, and VOD, which is the amount of water in the crop. These three things are currently uh, operational, and we're working on cloud-free NDVI. I don't know if you're familiar with the term NDVI. NDVI is uh, like the holy grail when, uh, within agriculture and satellites, uh, but there's a huge issue, cloud cover, uh, because it's an optical image. Uh, we have solved that, and next growing season we'll go live with cloud-free NDVI. You're uh, claiming that you, say you see water and yeah. much better than everybody else. Yeah. Uh, why and how? Um, so here's a little technology, um, passive microwave technology is actually it's a satellite up there 800 kilometers up high. Um, it, it senses a certain transmissivity of the earth, like, like what it does. The transmissivity changes with the amount of water in the soil. That's what we detect. And we detect that straight through the crop, so it doesn't matter if there's crop on top of it. Uh, we see the amount of water in the soil because, again, that transmissivity changes with the amount of water that's in, available in the soil. Um, the data in itself is uh, very cool, very scientific, very operational, but you need to turn it into an application. So we partner with um, the biggest agricultural and insurance companies in the world, uh, like Swiss Re, like Bayer, like BASF, um, and then we build applications that run on our data. Definitely, and, but, but here's, here's the interesting thing. I mean, we're living in interesting times because of ag tech, obviously, is a big thing. Um, we come from science, and we strongly believe that still a lot of science is needed to figure it out. Every crop, every location uh, uh, behaves differently, right? So when we get approached, for example, by an almond grower, a big almond grower that has 20,000 hectares, and together we build that application, right? So he's gonna share stuff about his spraying protocols or whatever he does. We open up our data sources and then together we build that, build that application. Um, it's not that we have a solution right now, but it's obvious that our data plays a very important role in these things that you just described. I talked to an Australian this morning about yeah. the bushfires. Yeah. So, and this is also, there is a direct correlation, right? Yeah, and that's interesting. We actually work for the Dutch firefighters. Uh, we're an agro-technic guy right now, so that's why I don't mention it. But um, we have the soil moisture. We have the VOD, that's the amount of water in the crop, but it could also be in the tree, right? Um, we also have uh, very precise vegetation maps, what grows where. If the firefighters know what grows where and what the amount of water in that stuff is, what, what the vegetation is, then they can, while not say where a fire will start, 
but when it starts, how it will spread, you know, because some things tend to burn better than other things. Yeah. Also on the fire side, um, we are working with big reinsurers to assess damage after a fire has hit the ground. Uh, completely different business case, yeah. but then we use those satellites again uh, to see how many hectares were burned down, uh, which in Australia is huge right now, and I think California is also being hit again a couple of weeks ago. I would like to add a personal message about climate change. It affects all of us, and we can do our best to limit carbon emissions. As the publisher of the Clipper magazine, we are doing our part. By reducing air travel, using more sustainable materials, and actually replacing car rides with public transport and our beautiful company Bicycle, we have been able to reduce our footprint by nearly 100 tons of carbon this year. It doesn't sound like much, but it's about a third of our total footprint. We encourage everyone to do their part for the future of the planet and the future of the nuts and dried fruit industry. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to The Clipper Magazine at theclippermag.com or contact us via email LinkedIn or on our website. Talk soon.